take the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with Airship Genesis Legendary Bible Adventures from Turning Point. Tune in to our monthly audio adventures and join the Genesis Exploration Squad as they travel back in time to experience the stories of the Bible firsthand and discover life-changing lessons. Also available is the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible, packed with the biblical content specifically written for kids from trusted Bible teacher, Dr. David Jeremiah. You can also download our Airship Genesis mobile game on your favorite smart device and play as your favorite characters in this puzzle adventure game as the squad experiences the life of Jesus firsthand. Just go to your app store and type the keywords Airship Genesis. For more details or to order a copy of the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible, visit our website at airshipgenesis.com slash Bible. That's airshipgenesis.com slash Bible. Why do Christians include Jesus' death in our celebration of Easter? Because those dark days make the victory of the empty tomb that much more glorious. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah continues his examination of the crucifixion of Christ, whose death on the cross paid the price for our sin. Here's David to introduce the conclusion of his special Easter week message, The Crucifixion. And I want to thank you for joining us today. We're working our way through this week, getting our hearts prepared for the wonderful story of the empty tomb. And today we're going to finish up what we talked about yesterday uh, in the details of the crucifixion, why that is such an important truth and why it's at the very center of our faith. Um, Tomorrow we'll talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ, and we have not forgotten the resurrection goes in between those two. But we're going to talk about uh, why Easter is important on the last day of the week, And uh, we're pointed toward that in our discussion. I hope you stay with us the whole week. I think it will make Easter more meaningful to you. It's our prayer and our hope. Today, uh, we go back to John 18 and 19, John's account of the crucifixion. We draw our hope from this truth that God loved us so much, he sent his only begotten son into this world to go to the cross, the cruel Roman cross, and pay the penalty for our sin. Do you love him for that? I sure do. And I am a person that I am today because of what he did for me when he forgave my sin. I am forgiven. My guilt is gone. As I recently taught in the book of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All of that because of the crucifixion. And the crucifixion was, well, it was ratified, verified because of the resurrection. And we'll learn more about that as we move through the week. We'll talk a little bit about the ascension for the next couple of days. But right now, back to the cross, back to Calvary, back to the mountain outside of Jerusalem, and the death of Christ in our behalf. The scripture says in verse 33 that when they had come to a place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Now watch carefully. And the people stood looking on. The respected masses just beholding him. The average people, the good merchants, the fine citizens, the respected, the silent majority, if you will just stood and watched 
just looked on as if it were the commonplace event they expected to see on any given day outside of Jerusalem. And are there not many, and perhaps the vast majority of people today, who when it comes to understanding the death of our Lord are like the respected masses of people, just looking on, just knowing that somewhere in the past there was a man who was crucified who was a great man, but having no knowledge, no intimate understanding of the meaning and purpose of the cross. You may be part of the respected mass, just one of the many. You know about Christ. You know that historians have said he was crucified, but that's all you know. As far as you're concerned, Good Friday is just another day on your calendar, perhaps that lets you out of work a few hours early. The respected masses. And then there was the attitude of the religious leaders. Notice as you continue to read concerning his crucifixion in the 35th verse, the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And if you had all of the gospel records together, you would know how they mocked Jesus, these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people to whom all the Jews looked up. And they criticized him and they sneered at him and they mocked him. In Matthew 27, we read one of their jibes at Jesus was like this, Thou that destroyest the temple and in three days buildeth it, Save thyself. For Jesus had taught them that just as the temple was destroyed and would be rebuilt, his temple, which was his body, would be destroyed, and in three days it would be rebuilt. An illustration of his coming death, burial, and resurrection, and the Jews never forgot it. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they threw that at him to mock him with his own words. In Mark's gospel in the 15th chapter in verse 32 we are told that some of the religious leaders stood under the cross where Jesus was hanging and they called to him with these words, Come down from the cross and we will believe. And Jesus, though he did not say it out loud, must have certainly thought, If I come down from the cross, there will be nothing to believe. And then there is the attitude of the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers had as their attitude brutality. In many respects, I blame the Roman soldiers far less than the Jews. They were trained in the art of brutality. They were doing their job, and certainly they were enjoying it. They mocked him, and they gave him vinegar to drink. And they said, If thou be the Son of God, save thyself. And they cast lots for his clothes, and they gambled while the Savior was dying for them. And then there was the attitude of the one thief who did not believe. There were three who were crucified that day, the Savior and two malefactors. Actually, the term that is used to describe these two criminals is the same term to describe the crime of Barabbas. They were insurrectionists, if you will. They were rebels. They had rebelled against the system. They were thieves and robbers and insurrectionists, undesirable characters. Some unknown poet has written, One day upon Golgotha, three men died. The thief, the Christ, a thief. They were crucified. A cross of hope for one. 
hope not too late. His fellow died upon a cross of hate. Between them and for both of them, Jesus died. A little glimpse of depravity is seen as we watch this one thief. In the action and the words of this thief, condemned to die, he turns on a fellow prisoner and casts abuse at him. If you really are the Christ, he says, come down from the cross. But there was a fifth person at the cross that day, and that was the repentant thief. And the scripture says he believed. In our text, we are told in verses 40 and 41 that he said, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The crucifixion itself is recorded in but just a few words that follow in Luke 23 and also in John 19. Isn't it strange that the most important event in the history of the world is given to us in great detail in all that surrounds it and in great simplicity in that which describes it? Just read the simple words that paint the picture which has been etched in the heart of every believer forever in the 44th verse. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Is that all? Isn't there something else? Oh, yes, the other Gospels fill in a few of the details. But the rest is left for us, for us to understand and to contemplate and to search and to study. The article that I mentioned at the beginning of this message, written by a pathologist, a scientist, a doctor. And in this article, this physician, having newly come to Christ, took all of the pathological evidence that he could assume from the biblical record and from the secular historians, and he put it together as a medical brief to determine what really happened to the Lord Jesus that day on Golgotha. Some, you see, have said that he did not die there. One of the famous theories of the resurrection is called the swoon theory, that Jesus did not die on the cross, but he was taken down alive he was taken to the tomb, and in the coolness of the tomb, he revived and came out and met his followers and carried on with his life. Anyone who knows anything about the crucifixion knows it takes much more faith to believe that fairy tale than it does to believe the record of the Word of God. I want to read what this Christian medical doctor has said about our Lord's crucifixion. I cannot read all that the man has written, but I have chosen a few sections to describe from a medical perspective what Jesus endured for you and for me on the cross. 
the rigors of Jesus' ministry would have precluded any major physical illness or a weak general constitution. Accordingly, it is reasonable to assume that Jesus was in good physical condition before his walk to Gethsemane. However, during the 12 hours between 9 p.m. Thursday and 9 a.m. Friday, he had suffered great emotional stress, abandonment by his closest friends, a physical beating. Also, in the setting of traumatic and sleepless nights, he had been forced to walk more than two and a half miles to and from the sites of the various trials. These physical and emotional factors may have rendered Jesus particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of scourging. And then he describes what it meant to be scourged. Flogging was legally preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman senators or soldiers were excluded. The usual instrument to flog a person was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. Occasionally staves also were used, and for scourging the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, the buttocks, the legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of those who administered it and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. After the scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victim. The pathologist then describes the medical aspects of scourging. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. At the praetorium, Jesus was severely whipped, although the severity of the scourging is not discussed in the scriptures. A detailed word study of the ancient Greek text for the verse that describes this is particularly harsh. It is not known whether the number of lashes was limited to 39 in accordance with Jewish law. The Roman soldiers, amused that this weakened man had claimed to be a king, began to mock him by placing a robe on his shoulder, a crown of thorns on his head, and a wooden staff as a scepter in his right hand. Next, they spit on Jesus and struck him on the head with the wooden staff. Moreover, when the soldiers tore the robe from Jesus' back, they probably reopened the scourging wounds. The severe scourging, with its intense pain and appreciable blood loss, most probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. Moreover, he was rendered by his skin particularly tender. The physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep, also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. It was customary for the condemned man to carry his own cross. But Jesus was not strong enough even to do that. After the scourging and the mocking at about 9 a.m., 
The Roman soldiers put Jesus' clothes back on him and then led him and the two thieves to be crucified. Jesus apparently was so weakened by the severe flogging that he could not carry his part of the cross to the site of the crucifixion. Simon of Cyrene was summoned to carry Christ's cross, and the processional then made its way to Golgotha, or Calvary, an established crucifixion site. Here, Jesus' clothes, except for a linen loincloth, again were removed, thereby probably reopening the wounds once more. He then was offered a drink of wine mixed with myrrh, but after tasting it refused the drink. Finally, Jesus and the two thieves were crucified. All those scriptural references are made to nails in the hands. These are not at odds with the archaeological evidence of wrist wounds, since the ancients customarily considered the wrist to be part of the hand. It is unclear whether Jesus was crucified on a low cross or a high Latin cross, but archaeological findings favor the former. The fact that he was offered a drink of wine from a sponge placed on a stalk of hyssop would lead us to believe he was crucified on a low cross. The soldiers and the civilian crowd taunted Jesus throughout the crucifixion ordeal, and the soldiers cast lots for his clothing. Jesus Christ, as you know, spoke seven times from the cross. Since speech occurs during exhalation, these short, terse utterances must have been particularly difficult and painful. About 3 p.m. that Friday, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, bowed his head, and died. The Roman soldiers and onlookers recognized his moment of death. Since the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the crosses after sunset, the beginning of the Sabbath, they asked Pontius Pilate to order crucifracture to hasten the deaths of the three crucified men. The soldiers broke the legs of the two thieves, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Rather, one of the soldiers pierced his side, probably with an infantry spear, and produced a sudden flow of blood and water. And later that day, Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb. It's not just a custom, my friends. It happened like that. And I have a question to ask. Who did that? Who did that? Who crucified him? Oh, you say, Pastor, history tells us the Romans did. Pilate, the Roman governor, could have set him free, but to preserve his standing with the mob, he, willing to content the people, delivered Jesus. And when he had scourged him to be crucified, according to Mark 15, 15, and Matthew 27, the Romans did it. Rome is guilty. They crucified Jesus. Oh, the Jews did it. The Jews cried, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And Peter, preaching to the Jews later on in the book of Acts, pointed his finger at them in Acts 2.23, and he said, Him ye have taken, and by wicked hands you have crucified and slain him. The Jews killed him. Oh, God did it. Isaiah 53, 4. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Acts 2, 23. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God did it. Oh, I did it. 
That's right. I did it. My sins nailed him to the cross. He died for me. Who crucified Jesus? We did it. All of us. Every single one of us. It was our sin that nailed him there. It is not just a history lesson that we learn at Easter. It is a reminder to each and every one of us that our sin, our falling short of God's glory, our active or passive rebellion is the very commodity that put Jesus Christ on the cross and the sins of every individual from the beginning of Adam until this day, the sin of the whole world, that's what nailed him to the cross. The Jews were simply instruments in the sovereign plan of God. The Romans were simply a part of that which God had foreordained from the beginning of the world. God, in his foreordination and determinate foreknowledge and counsel, decided that because of our sin, there had to be a sacrifice. And he picked the best that heaven could offer, the sinless Son of God, the perfect Son of Man, And he sent him down here and put him on a cruel cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. I nailed him to that cross. I put him there. And as I meditate upon the death of Jesus, I want to remember that. I don't ever want to forget that. Oh, how easily we forget. How easily, men and women, we fall back into the very kinds of sins from which we have been redeemed. And in a sense, we crucify him afresh in our hearts. When we are involved in that which is rebellion against God as believers, we need to remember that our conduct, which has caused us to move away from fellowship with God, it is that very conduct that put him on the cross in the first place. Some of you, you're carrying around in your heart the burden and the sin and the guilt and the awful weight that is upon your heart and upon your shoulders because nobody's ever explained to you that when Jesus went to the cross, he went there for you. He went there to pay the penalty you deserve. Your sins put him there, but he went there willingly that he might give to you absolutely free eternal life. There is not anything in all of the world that I know of that is the absolute epitome of an ungrateful heart like a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who knows he is a sinner who knows that Christ died for him, but refuses time after time after time to take the free gift that he went there to purchase in your behalf. If we do not know the Savior, if we do not know our Lord, we must come immediately, falling down at the foot of the cross and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, it was for me that you died, and I understand that now. My sins are black And they're a weight upon my soul and they separate me from heaven and from eternity with God. And I bring my sin now and I lay it at the cross and I ask for forgiveness and I accept freely what you did for me. Lord, thank you for dying in my place and being my substitute. I receive you as my Savior. That's the first thing. You cannot go any place until you've gone there. And then if we are Christians, if we know the Lord, if we have come to the cross for salvation... If we have accepted the Lord into our lives and into our hearts, must we not regularly examine our lives in light of the cross? Must we not come often?
to see again and again the awful price that was paid for our redemption. Know ye not that ye are not bought with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. May God, with new freshness and great awareness, implant within our hearts and our minds a great and new appreciation for the price that was paid that we might be free. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today. This is Easter week. We're getting our hearts prepared uh, to celebrate Easter. I think it'll be more important to many of us this year than ever before. For many, it will be uh, among the early days of being able to regather as churches, to reassemble as believers, and a reminder to us of how important all of that is. I told our congregation last week that when you don't get to do something for a while, it helps you appreciate what you're missing. Not being able to go to church for all these weeks that we've been kind of locked out of our churches has made us aware now that we're back that uh, church is not anything for us to take for granted. We are to assemble ourselves as the Word of God teaches us in our churches and honor the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So tomorrow we'll talk about the ascension. You need to remember that there's just two days left now, today and tomorrow, for you to get the book, Hope, Living Fearlessly in a Scary World. And if you haven't done that already, you need to do it. Time is running out, and we still want to honor your requests. So when you send your gift today, just be sure to ask for the book on Hope, and we'll send it off to you as soon as we get your request. Thanks for listening. Please join us tomorrow for the next edition of Turning Point. Today's message originated from Shadow Mountain Community Church and senior pastor, Dr. David Jeremiah. We'd love to know how Turning Point is touching your life. So please write us at Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta B.C., V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's encouraging new book, Hope, Living Fearlessly in a Scary World. Stop letting fear hold you back. The book is yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your favorite smart devices or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries for instant access to our programs and resources. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Jeremiah continues his special messages for Easter week right here on Turning Point. Thank you for your prayers and support of Turning Point. We invite you to make an even bigger impact by becoming one of our Bible Strong partners. A special group whose support of the ministry is crucial in helping Dr. David Jeremiah deliver the unchanging Word of God to an ever-changing world. Turning Point is committed to presenting sound biblical teaching all across Canada. And when you stand with us in partnership, we also commit to you to provide you with empowering resources to keep you Bible strong. When you set up your online account at davidjeremiah.ca slash biblestrong, you will have instant access to Dr. Jeremiah's topical living library audio messages and his companion booklets, exclusive club resources, and our quarterly Influencing Your World newsletter. You can also purchase additional study guides at a 50% discount. 
for personal or small group studies with our convenient one-click checkout. Plus, join our exclusive Facebook page. You will have special access to new audio podcasts and additional content from Dr. Jeremiah. Join with other Bible Strong partners today by committing to give $25 or more each month. Your prayers and donations are the backbone of Turning Point, keeping us Bible Strong. For more information or to join, visit our website today at davidjeremiah.ca slash Bible Strong.